0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Milton Gaither. Milton is Professor of Education at Messiah College in Pennsylvania, and he's the author of the recently released Homeschool and American History, second edition, uh, just out with Palgrave Macmillan. Milton, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you, good to be here. Before we begin talking about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a
1: professor of education at Messiah College, a small school in central Pennsylvania. Um, I'm a historian of education by training, so this is um, a project that I've been working on for many years. Uh, Got into it because, as a historian, I was looking for a topic that hadn't been given a lot of coverage and something that was intrinsically interesting, which this certainly was, and it's been a very good topic for me.
0: Now, the first edition of this book came out in 2008, very influential in its own time. And this the book we're talking about today is the second edition of that text, just out, uh, I think, uh, within the last year. What, what, what are the major differences between the two editions?
1: The major differences have to do with what's happened since 2008 in the homeschooling world, which has been a lot of things. Um, in 2008, when I was writing... Um, the internet was, was a big thing, but it wasn't quite the overwhelmingly big thing it has become. So it's transformed the way homeschooling is done and the way homeschooling politics have, have taken place. It's also had a large impact on the, kind of some of the specifics that I cover. Um, between 2007, when I about when I finished writing the book the first time, and 2017, um, the internal workings of the homeschool movement have been uh, affected profoundly by um, basically revelations that have happened of uh, uh, key leaders, um, especially within the conservative wing of the movement, who've been uh, caught in some various scandals. And I talk about that a lot in the book. And that's really been important, even though it seems kind of... a scurrilous to talk about sort of that sort of thing. It's had significant impacts on um, how homeschooling has been perceived publicly and how people within the movement are dealing with it, and especially how children who've grown up in the homeschooling communities now think about what they experience as kids.
0: Now, a lot of this conversation happens in social media, doesn't it? Um Under various it does. kinds of hashtags. But as as we begin this conversation about home education, could you just tell us what the term means?
1: Yeah. Well, let me tell you how I use the term. Um, it, it, that's part of the issue of, of it. As there's no not a real clear consensus about what it actually means. But the way I tell the story, my basic historical um, narrative, is that um, prior to about the you know early 1970s, um, most of what people thought of as homeschooling didn't exist. Um, there was plenty of education in the home, but that was different than the modern con- conception of homeschooling. And here's the difference: uh, in early America. Uh, colonists from Europe would come over or Americans would move from the east coast out west and in such context there wasn't formal education at all you were living out on the prairie all by yourself and all you had available was your house and so a lot of people taught their kids in their houses a lot of wealthy people had tutors in their homes and things like that. They were not doing that as a self-conscious protest against government schools. Government schools didn't exist or at least weren't available and so it was kind of something one did by default and as soon as other options became available, families in these situations were delighted to have the opportunity to send their kids to a formal institution rather than have their kids be educated in their houses. So that's that's the early history that I tell. And then gradually, as the nation grew in population and in constitutional complexity, um, public and private institutions were constructed and lots and lots and lots of, and event, eventually almost all American children went to institutional schools. And that gets you up to the late 1960s and early 1970s when you begin to see a growing resentment among uh, various Americans, and this is why the story was interesting to me, not just um, conservatives, not just liberals, but people on both sides of the political spectrum. At about the same time in American history began to grow frustrated with institutionalized schooling and began to pull their children out. That's what I'm calling homeschooling, the political protest against institutionalized schooling and the choice to teach your children at home as a self-conscious political act.
0: Now, from what we know from the press, this is, in the modern world, a fairly large movement. How many people are involved in home education in America?
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Everyone would love to know the answer to that question, and we do not know, um, and here's why. We have 50 states in the United States. Their education is not a federal issue in this country, it's a state issue, um, and different, the different states have different ways of t- keeping track of homeschoolers, Different, vastly different regulations or lack of regulations about homeschooling. Many states don't even require homeschoolers to register, so there's no tally, there's no actual number. The best we've got are um, statistics drawn from samples. The best sample is the National Household Education Survey, which is put out about every four years by the federal government. It, it captures a, it's, it's you know, many thousands of families are sampled are are studied in that survey, um, and when they do that study, they capture always a few hundred homeschooling families, and they generalize about the whole country from that. So, you know, to the degree that those generalizations based upon samples are accurate. Um you can say that homeschooling has continued to grow from the time that these studies were first conducted. The first A N H E S study was in nineteen ninety-nine. And uh from that time you've seen a steady rise to the you know, again, extrapolating guessing. The best guess is Probably about two million kids are being homeschooled right now in the United States, which is a significant growth since 1999 and represents just shy of 3% of the population.
0: So if that represents 3% of the population, why does homeschooling get the media attention that it does?
1: I think largely because of that political stuff I was talking about a minute ago. The people who homeschool are interesting people um, because they're typically on on the fringes of society, be it on the kind of radical left side rejecting, you know, many aspects of modern civilization and trying to return to farms or communes or things like that or having radical ideas about children. Children should be free to just kind of be as sometimes they're called free range kids, you know, like free range chickens. Just let the kids roam around and be free and do what they want. Um, uh, Another wing of people that get a lot of attention are celebrities who either work homeschooled as children or who choose to homeschool their children. And then on the other side, of course, there are very conservative Christians who are always interesting to people because they have practices and beliefs that are outside of the mainstream. So that's probably the main reason it gets so much attention, because of its countercultural nature.
0: Now, in this wonderful book, which you've written, Homeschool in American History, second edition, 2018, you you mainly focus on the 20th century, and we'll come to that in a second. But before we do, c- could you remind us about the origins of homeschooling, or perhaps the genesis account, or the origin myth, of the modern homeschooling movement. Where does all of this come from in early America?
1: Okay, in early America. So here we're talking about what I like to call home education, or domestic education, to make it distinct from what I was describing earlier as that political movement. And there, the, the origin is basically sheer pragmatics. Um, I begin the book with an account of the pilgrims who came over here. Um, people who know this history will remember they left England uh, because the Protestant Reformation didn't work out the way they hoped it would, and they went through Amsterdam, which was um, free. They were free to worship, but it was free for everybody else to worship, too, and they were f- worried that their children were going to fall away, as many were doing, because of the competition from various other groups and the uh, kind of secularism of the society over there, the shipping culture that they had. So they left, and they came over here, and they founded you know, New England. They and other groups tried to do the same thing, so groups like that, uh, came to America with the intent of spreading the gospel among their children. They, they, it was it was an effort to keep their children pure from the sins and the taints of the world. Um, that's, if you want a founding story, that's a pretty good one, because that meshes with the self-identity of many who homeschool today, an effort to uh, separate your children out from the world, to train them up to be godly.
0: Now you used the word founding there, Milton, and f- founding is a very important theme in the first couple of chapters which are structured around 1776. Why does chapter 2 begin with 1776? What's significant about this period from founding through to the the, the beginning of civil war?
1: Yeah, one of the themes I'm chasing in the first couple of chapters there is the very interesting transformation in American family life between the colonial period and the early national period. And what you see is many things, but one of the really important things is the shift in parental authority. In in the colonial world, it was very clearly the father's role to be the educator, to be the moral uh, paragon of the home and stuff like that. And that falls apart uh, by the 18th century in America for lots of reasons. Um, But to keep the story short here for this conversation, basically the woman emerges, the mother emerges as the uh, solution to the Problem of of men just kind of shirking their duties and not going to church as much as they would and spending their lives on money and and drink, um, and so the women become the paragons of virtue in the home and the kind of instrument of redemption, not only of of the whole country but also of their individual families. And those two go together. It's like you know the famous line, "The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world." It's that way of thinking. That the mother is going to create a holy commonwealth. It's going to, and we need that holy commonwealth if we're going to have a, a good nation. Because now we're a nation built not upon the authority of a church, but the consent of the governed. And those governed have to be morally responsible people. And who's going to get them there? The mothers. That's that's what I'm talking
0: about in those first few chapters. In chapter three, you you talk about the eclipse of the fireside from 1865 through till about 1930 or thereabouts. Um, is there something that's going right. on there about the nationalization of education? or suspicion, perhaps, of the kinds of views that might be inculcated within the home?
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Of course, those dates that you just mentioned, that's a huge sweeping period of history, right? So it's really hard, again, to make a quick generalization about it. But if I had to do that, um, what's what's happening in essence in America is prior to uh, the the time we're describing right now, most Americans lived in small, little, isolated, almost villages where everything more or less that they needed. If if you, have, you ever, if readers or listeners ever used to see the old show, Little House on the Prairie, that'll give you a little flavor of the kind of context we're talking about. Little small towns all over America. And then what happened in the 19th century is those towns were linked together, first by canals, then by railroads, and then by actual paved roads. So that um, what emerged was a vast network of trade and commerce between country and town. And what emerged was capitalism and capitalism transformed everybody. The farmers are no longer farming in a self-sufficient way, you know, 40 acres and a mule taking care of your family. They're growing cash crops to sell to, at the market to buy products and that connects them to the cities. The, this cash crop farming produces much more um, available crop which uh, allows the cities to flourish because people in the cities need something to eat. So there's this interesting, uh, you know, basically I'm, I'm describing uh, The modernization the growing complexification of the the country and you see that reflected in that in in the commercial sphere and then of course also in the government that emerges to deal with that vastly increased population needing much more um, government oversight and part of that um, uh, oversight emerges as as public education so that's the when I talk about the eclipse of the fireside what I mean there is children are learning what they need to learn not you know around the family fire but at a separate institution, tax-supported.
0: Now you, you describe in the book the, this institutionalization of education through this period, and you, you show a number of states that that become quite um, aware that their legislation has to reflect this as well. How does that play out at the end of the nineteenth, early twentieth century?
1: Okay. Well, by the Civil War in the South, in the North, pretty much everybody had come along with the idea of public education. So, so you you went from having schooling be something that was very popular but it was funded by individual families to something that was even more popular funded by tax dollars that did not happen in the South and the South had that happen as a it was, it was imposed upon the South when the South wanted to return to the Union a condition of returning to the United States was to create public schools which the South did at that time and from that time on basically the story of institutional schools is the tr- sort of continued growth um, systematization and um, normalization School, schools around the country begin to look more and more the same. Um, again, we're always keeping in mind that when we're talking about this, we're talking about this for the white population. Um, that white population which is growing like crazy because you're having tremendous numbers of immigrants from Europe coming over during all this time period. So that's that's the story. It's a story of growth and more growth and even more growth.
0: And then you remind us, round about the well, round about the aftermath of the Second World War, something very important changes in the way in which your subjects think about education. That suddenly, this educational impulse, which has been driven by what we might call government programs or government agendas, suddenly becomes captured by a countercultural moment. How
1: does that work? Yes, it does. A lot of it has to do with the Cold War. It's very complicated. Lots and lots of historians have tried to figure this out. What what happened in America? um but yeah the cold war is often depicted as a major culprit um uh the increasing uh, education and in, uh, of, of women is a major factor suburbanization is a major factor as well as people are moving out of the old ethnic ghettos of the, of the cities in which many uh, you know are, uh, of these European immigrants I was talking about a minute ago, they're raised that way. The men go off to war, World War II, They come back on the GI Bill. Everybody knows the story, um, and they they go to the they go to college, vastly increasing the number of people in America who go to college and universities. And you know they marry their sweetheart and they move out to the suburbs, which the suburbs are created by federal housing policy, making that whole way of life possible. Um, all that's going on. And what happens in the suburbs? Well, you're separated out from those communal norms of the of, of the urban complex. And you're living in a much more isolated world. And so you develop a much more privatized understanding of life. Life, you know, think of like the, the old communal swimming pools in the cities versus the private pools in people's backyards in the suburbs. That's, that kind of is a, is a metaphor, I think, of what I'm talking about. So out in suburbia, uh, you have easily cultivated a more individualistic, privatized vision of life. Um, than you saw earlier in the, in the period. And the, the Cold War contributes to that because what is the Soviet Union? It is collectivism. And if we're the opposite of that, what are we? We are individualism. So the, the, the kind of older model in public education fits that older model of the common good. Everyone getting together, tax, taxing themselves for the sake of the public and everyone sending their kids to a single institution where everybody joins together in common. That starts to sound like hap- communism to a lot of people after, the, after World War II.
0: And one of the people who suspects that vision of social reality as communism is an individual called R.J. Rushdooney, upon whom you spent yes, considerable time uh, discussing and describing his thought. Who was Rushdooney, and why does he matter for this story of home education?
1: Yeah, Dooney is very interesting. He's not nearly as well-known as he ought to be, because he's, he's been incredibly influential. Um, he was a conserv- very conservative Calvinist, um, and what, what he did is he was able to popularise... Some theories that were kind of were current in, in some of the higher echelons of Calvinist orthodoxy, um, but he made them real, and he he was able to find a constituency, and the constituency he found was these suburban housewives who um, donated, and he was able to make a, a good living and create a vast network of, of institutions, and people after him built upon them and made them bigger and bigger and bigger. And in the in the book, I tell the story of a lot of groups whose uh, whose founders got their inspiration from Rastuni, including the Rutherford Institute, um, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, and many others. But anyway, Rastuni kind of was the grand theorist the, the, uh, who set the agenda. It, uh, pretty, he didn't invent the phrase, but he popularized the term secular humanism and that way of thinking, that government school is by definition secular humanism. It's ungodly, it's not what the Bible says. and he. Has this elaborate theory of of, of separate spheres where there's the God has ordained different spheres uh, and having to have different institutions govern them. And the sphere of governance of education is not the government, that's secular humanism. It's the church and it's the family. Um, And so Restony contributed lots of his time and energy to going around the country and trying to um, foster the development of independent private Christian schools and homeschooling.
0: Now it sounds like on both the right and left, uh, as as um, educational theorists or practitioners move towards home education, it seems that on both sides of the political spectrum, there's a strain of anti-Americanism or at least skepticism about America and what America stands for, which is all the more remarkable given the context of the Cold War.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it anti-Americanism. I, I would call it. <sighs> It's it's a it's a cynicism about the common good. It's it's a retreat to private life, um, which in a sense could, you could argue that is Americanism. You know, going all the way back to those those pilgrims that we talked about at the beginning. Um, uh, so it, it's it's always a fraught issue. What is it to be an American? Like I you know you recall. Um, in the Watergate era. um, Who was the good American? Was the good American the one who stood up for law and order and kind of trusting the officials? Or was the good American the one who uncovered the corruption? You know, who's the real good American? And of course, everybody on all sides would think of themselves as the true American. So if it wasn't a rejection of the concept of America, it was was a competition over the definition of what that meant. Um, Conservatives uh, on the Christian right Wanted America to be pure and godly. They they would hearken back to the Pilgrims and the Puritans and say we need to restore that that good Christian America idea. That that's the founding of our country. Liberals would say no. It's the heart of, of America. It's just to be protesting against power. We always took it to the man. We we were we were against the king. You know. So uh, it depends on who you ask what it means to be a good American.
0: Well, how, how does the how does a a, a a sort of a left spectrum home education movement emerge. We've just been talking about returning the right. That's right. Is is there a similar figure on the left? There are.
1: There are are a few similar figures. And um, historically speaking, just by a few years, but historically speaking, it was on the left that it emerged first. And it came out of the uh, radical critiques of leftists against government schooling, um, which they saw as part of the military industrial complex you know the kind of that 1960s critique they, they felt that children were being um, standardized they felt that that uh, the whole world was getting so constricted that that um you know there there was overlay upon overlay big brother is watching you that way of thinking um they wanted to liberate children and um one of those figures who was interested in liberating children was a man named john holt and earlier in his career he had been advocate, an advocate for free schools through private schools with, with very liberal pedagogy. And eventually he came to the conclusion that even free schools were insufficient. There's really no way to get kids to be free within the confines of an institution. So he kind of stumbled into home education. He didn't know that there was such a thing, but when he when he got there intellectually, he looked around and saw that there actually were a few families doing what he thought was, were, ought to be done. So he became the first person to sort of network all these families together. He He had significant funds from his own publications. He wrote a lot of successful books. And he gave and gave and gave of those funds to build the first infrastructure of of homeschooling. He created the first homeschoolers magazine. The term unschooling that is still thrown around these days originates with John Holt. So a lot of people who take him as their inspiration. They're the sort i mentioned the concept of free range children earlier that the concept of, of homeschooling as all about liberating children not about inculcating them with conservative ideology
0: so we have holt on the left you might say and rushduni on the right um yes. 30 years later 40 years later wh- where are these movements now
1: yeah so what happened um after those the, those founding f- Fathers, if you will say of the homeschooling movement, and I say that with a, with a smirk because um, even though the men get all the credit for founding the movement, the va- I mean, like 90 plus, 98, who you knows, high, high percentages of, of people who actually are the homeschoolers are the women. It is almost entirely a women's movement, um, just with a few male figures at the lead. Um, but what happened is at first the, the, the people on the left and the people on the right worked together because they had a common enemy and that common enemy was laws making what they were doing either illegal or no laws at all so the people who were in charge of the school systems could do whatever they felt like it. So, um, the left wing homeschoolers and right wing homeschools combined forces and worked across the country successfully in the, in the early 1980s to get law after law after law passed or changed or over- overturned by court cases or what have you. Um, to make the practice much more clearly legal and easy to do. Um, by the mid-1980s, that um, that approach had been mostly successful. But at that very time, um, John Holt died. Um, Rush Junior was getting older and not being so contrib- contributing as much. Another man we haven't mentioned, Raymond Moore, was getting um older as well, and a new generation of, was emerging, a generation of baby boomers, and they were more uh, solidly on that, the Christian right side, and they pretty much took over the movement, uh, in, at least in its public face. Um, and one reason they were able to do so is because, frankly, the conservative Christians have a, have a better ideology for home education than, than the liberals do, largely because conservative Christianity uh, likes the idea of having a woman stay at home. Whereas liberals don't necessarily have that idea. So um, liberal homeschoolers, there have always been fewer of them, and they tend to not homeschool for the duration the way a lot of conservative Christians do. So because of all of this, um, by the mid-1980s, late-1980s, conservatives are largely in charge of the movement, and they drive it until the Internet takes over and uh, kind of break the monopoly that conservative Christians, largely through the, through the homeschool Legal Defense Association, held on the on the movement. Uh, having said all that, um, the final thing I'll say about this is we've seen a continual progression, even up to the present day, of looser and looser and looser regulations because homeschoolers have been very, very effective in their local state houses um, lobbying for what their agenda, which is basically to get government out of their hair so they can do what they want.
0: How, is, uh, how does uh, home education look at the moment in terms of its future prospects?
1: Yeah, well, I mentioned briefly the difference between my older edition and the newer one is some of the scandals that happened around 2012 to 2014. Mm-hmm. So th- there's been some uh, a little bit of um, self-reflection. We Homeschooling has been around long enough now. Uh, a whole generation of young people have grown up, and now they're adults themselves, and there's, several of them have been have had, um, you know, some are very positive about what they experienced, but a lot of them have been negative. And so there's been some critiques from within the movement having emerged by the children saying, we need to be more regulated more because there's rampant abuse or whatever. Um, so there's a little bit of self-doubt in the movement right now. It also seems to have, it's hard to know. Like I said earlier, we don't have numbers, but it seems like we've kind of plateaued it, it, in the, in the 80s and 90s. It was, it was, you know, every year growing and growing and growing and growing. It seems like that that rate of growth has slowed, if not stopped at the present moment. Um, and the institutions connected with homeschooling have matured. Um, It's very easy to do now comparatively. Um, It's not hard at all to get on the internet and find a group of other like-minded people right in your area and plug in and start homeschooling. It's so much easier than it used to be. So that's, that's the change we've had. Uh, Basically homeschooling is more and more normal. And another thing I want to throw in about that, and this is a major theme towards the end of the book that I talk about, is that as homeschooling has emerged as a popular option, uh, it's been co-opted increasingly by public education itself so that lots of kids now are p- homeschooled through a public school because they do it online in their houses, through charter schools or what have you. Um, lots and lots and lots of kids are doing that um, and that will probably continue and grow. Hmm.
0: So Milton, if we want to find out more about home education, we can read your fine new book, Second Edition, in American History, but we can also visit a couple of websites that you maintain.
1: That's right. Um, myself and a, another scholar named Rob Kunzman, who wrote a wonderful book called um, Write These Laws on Your Children, a, a Sociological Study of Christian Homeschooling. Uh, several years ago, the two of us created an international organization with several other scholars from other countries. It's called the International Center for Home Education Research, org. Um, And on that site, we have really good resources for research. We see ourselves as researchers studying homeschoolers. We're not advocates or critics. We're just trying to understand the phenomenon. I review um, recent research on homeschooling on a blog that's on that site. We maintain a uh, very comprehensive, probably the most comprehensive, not probably, it is the most comprehensive list of uh, homeschool research available. You can search by various things on it. And we also do our best to keep track of the data that the states that do report put out. So if you want to know, how many people are homeschooling in my state? Well, if, if that data exists, it's on our website, so you can look.
0: Well, Milton, uh, it's been great to have you on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Um, but before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment?
1: Sure. Yeah, just last year I finished a textbook on the history of education, not just homeschooling, but the history of education uh, all across the board, um, and I'm not sure if that that's kind of exhausted me. And so I'm not, I haven't really delved deeply into the next project. But one of the things I'm beginning to think about as a, as a possible next topic would be the growth and extension of credentialing and how that makes it more difficult for people from uh, lower income backgrounds to be able to get good jobs because everything now requires a credential. And I would like to tell the history of how that happened.
0: Well, that sounds like a great project. Um, for now, I want to say thanks for writing Homeschool in American History, recently published in second edition by Palgrave Macmillan. And thanks for coming onto to the show to share your work with us.
1: Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun.
0: And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.